Welcome to the First Century Youth Ministry Podcast. My name is Heather. And I'm Mark, and we are your co-hosts. And we're here to take a look back into the Jewish roots of our faith. For the way forward in youth ministry discipleship. This podcast is a part of the Youth Cartels Podcast Network. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It's Heather here, and I'm riding solo without Mark because I've got a return special guest on. It's John Farwell, who joined us a few episodes ago. If you haven't listened to John's previous episode, I encourage you to do so. Um, John's on the show today because Mark and I are gearing up for our trip to Israel, and we want to continue the conversation of the beauty and the importance of understanding the land of Israel and how understanding the land of Israel and even going to Israel yourself really makes the Bible come to life. So here's the thing. Even if you don't plan on going to Israel, this episode is going to benefit you because John has some really awesome things to share um, that will really enlighten your thinking and we pray help you become a better disciple maker. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I got to be the record for the first return guest, right? You're it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yep. Yep. You're it. Congratulations. You get a virtual high five. There it Thank is. you. Thank you. Thank you're you. Very welcome. I buy you Cubs tickets, but they're really expensive now. They used to be cheap. Now that they won the World Series, it's like. They actually the most expensive ticket in baseball. Is that right? And they're not very good right now. Mm, no, not surprising. Yeah, good time. Well, so the conversation today is going to center around a few things. What we've got going on that John's going to be doing uh, for all of you is an opportunity to really get around a table, if you will, a Zoom table. And we're going to have a conversation about the land of Israel on September the 16th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to invite our listeners and anyone else, friends of theirs, to come and join us for a conversation to better understand the land of Israel, why it's important to go, and some other tidbits for even those who don't really want to go to the land of Israel that could still benefit them. So, Well, what I would say is that what you're going to walk away from is you're going to understand the Hebraic background of the Bible. There we go. From language, archaeology, geography, and how all those things coalesce together Mm -hmm. to help us understand the Bible better. Yeah, for sure. So John and I decided to take kind of a couple of uh, talking points today to kind of get you thinking about what we're going to be talking about uh, there on the 16th to see if you would want to join in on the conversation. So the first is that, you know, a lot of maps always orient to true north. And so when it comes to reading the Bible from a Hebraic perspective, what direction does the Bible point us to, John? So the Bible orients itself towards the east, which makes sense. If you think about this, all the temples oriented east to west facing the sun. So when you read the Bible, the Hebrew word for east, and there's like three of them, but the general idea is either is either the word for east in Hebrew means forward or to face the sun. Mm-hmm. And then the word for behind you is actually yom, which is sea, because if you're, sit, if you're standing in, this, in the Israel, the sun is in front of you mm-hmm. and the Mediterranean Sea is behind you. And north is the same word as left mm-hmm. and, and south is the same word as right because that's how your body is facing, orient, orient, orient itself. And that's the big thing is your Bible is very much oriented towards your body and to the senses. And so that's all part of understanding how to read your Bible. It's not 
an abstract book. They're not abstract concepts. So. Can you unpack a little bit more of what that means? The, you know, that our, our body is kind of. Well, your body is just using your, as the tangible example of how to orient your map as you face the sun. And the, and in the Hebraic perspective, everything's pretty much going to have a, a tangible, uh, something you can touch and taste and feel that's going to be connected to it, whether it's a Hebrew word mm. or a concept where you and I can walk into a, a theological seminary and talk about the omniscience of God. Yeah. Well, that word requires a definition to understand what it means. Sure. Most of the Hebraic concepts have a word picture that's attached with it. Right. So you, so you can't get anything better than you've got the sun, you've got the sea, you've got your right hand and your left hand yeah. to orient east, north, west, south. Sure. And understanding what that means and how that. So if, for example, if you're trying to do biblical geography, which is what I've got one of my master's degrees in, mm-hmm. and you were, you were reading the Bible from a Western perspective and you didn't understand that east is the way of orientation, mm-hmm. then you can misread the directions in the Bible as you're trying to find biblical sites. And not, there aren't a ton that are left to be found. There's lots to be found, but all the major ones pretty much have been found. But one of my class assignments was to try to find a biblical site, and we had to use the Bible as our source. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking on a map and you're reading reading the directions differently, um, then you would be looking at 90 degrees in the wrong place. Wow. Can you give an example of like maybe ways that people have misunderstood the Bible and trying to view it from a Western perspective or they've missed certain biblical sites that took a long time to uncover until they actually started looking eastward? Um, I, I don't come directly to my mind, but I'm sure they are. I'm sure they exist. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a biblical geography is, is, is something that's been going on for the last about 200 years. Yeah. And like I said, most of the significant places have been found, uh-huh. but you, I mean, the question you're asking is more than a 20 minute, um, yeah. podcast, but there, but those kind of things are there to be, to be dug up and researched for those who are interested. Sure. I remember you telling us when I was in Israel, when we were talking about like looking at the Bible from a Western perspective and how, when I look at different nativity scenes, they're all in wood and how you told us like, no, they would have been in stone. And then you took us to those places and we were able to see it for ourselves because you know, in today's world, information is so easily shared, but it's hard to know what's really true until you're actually there, right? You're on the ground, you're in the physical location, you see what's true because you're experiencing it with your hands and your senses and your body, kind of what you, what you alluded to earlier. Absolutely. So like even driving around Israel today, uh, now I will say the the Roman army did a really good job of chopping down lots of trees. However, even in biblical times, you'd only use wood for maybe your, your rafters of your house. Everything was made out of stone. And today, everything's made out of concrete. Sure. So like that principle doesn't change. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd also talked about in our pre-show, we talked about the importance of understanding the size of Israel and why that matters. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, it's so small. Like it's so hard to explain. You know, when I'm talking to people in North Carolina, I give them you know, from this town to this town to give them a reference point. And it's only about 50 miles across. And modern Israel is about 300 miles north and south. But biblical Israel is even smaller. It's made up of four climate zones of the coast, the mountains, the desert, and then the Galilee. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I grew up in Michigan on Lake Michigan. So like the Galilee area is like growing up on Lake Michigan with humidity, 
Yeah. Which think about that humidity in the desert. I mean, it's, that's a concept. But so you have you have the Galilee that's very its own distinct area. You've got the the coast which has got the Mediterranean, which feels obviously like the coast, and you've got the Judah Mountains, which is three thousand feet higher in elevation. And then you have the whole desert, the Judah de- Judah Desert, and then south, uh, more deeper desert. And you could be in all four climate zones in one day. Yeah. Which is a, just hard to fathom all that in one yeah. day. And then also understand all all these things impact how people farm, how people live, how people survive. All these things have an interplay of, of determining how you can live and where you can live and where can you find water, where can you dig a well. And all those things impact the story. So like Abraham, for example, he is down by Beersheba. Bear means well, Sheva is oath or seven. And so that's, it's a place of oath because he makes an oath with the king of Gerar. Mm-hmm. Gerar, I'm sorry. And, um, but it, it uh, Beersheba is at the place where two wadis, which are two canyons that have all the runoff of rain mm-hmm. come down to this point in this, in this, in this little valley about, oh, I'd say it's about maybe a couple miles from the ocean. Yeah. And what it means is that the water table is very high there. So it's easy to dig wells in that spot. Okay. So Abraham just didn't randomly, you know, yeah. like it was a diviner rod started yeah. looking, oh, I'm going to dig a well here. Yeah. He throws a place that already he knew had a high water table based because you have these two rivers, essentially. Sure. Now, they're not, they're not rivers in, in the winter, in this summertime, but in the wintertime, they're rivers mm-hmm. bringing water to this place and it gathers. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't random. Oh, no way. And the Bible is such an agricultural society. And so a lot of the times when we're reading our Bibles, if we even try to divorce it from the fact that these people, you know, were very agricultural and their culture and the way that they did life, we miss a lot on what the Bible's communicating as well. Oh, and I would say, then why do we have daylight standard time? Yeah. Because farmers need an extra hour in the day to do farming, which no longer really is germane to our society. Yeah. Yet we still do it. I grew up on a farm. Yeah. And in fact, in Michigan, they passed a law that you can't start school until after a certain date because of farming. Really? You know, yeah. So there's, but is that relative anymore to our culture? Sure. So, so, but there was a time not long ago, maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, where those ag- agricultural rhythms of life still have mattered in America too. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I remember when I, that's the thing that struck me the most when I landed in Israel was I was really, honestly, I was blown away by how small everything was. Because here in America, you know, when we think about going to a place that's really important, we think about going to a place that's really big and that has, you know, something that's flashy or something that is, um, you know, uh, that our eyes can barely right? Uh, see, because it's so large. And in Israel, everything is small. <laughs> I was just so blown away by that. I was, I was blown away that I could go to a, a tiny little village that it's like you, you walk in and you walk out, right? Or you're at this very important biblical site that Jesus did this one thing, and it's just this little tiny hillside. And I, I was just, I was blown away by that. Well, and that really kind of touches on the next thing is we wanted to talk about is really the space and geography and why does that matter? Yeah. Because your, your Bible story happens in a taste space and time context that we don't get when we just read the Bible. Now, you can you can get it on a map, which most people don't do when they do their Bible study, but you could and kind of figure some of this stuff out. However, when you're there and you experience something like this, for example, we talked about when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does it in a place that's called the religious triangle. And the religious triangle means the Jewish religious triangle. It makes up the town of Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, that the name um, religious triangle was a, 
was a term coined about 40 or 50 years ago. So it's not, it wasn't an ancient term, but the bottom line is this is a place where righteous Jews were living and trying to follow Torah and obey God. Sure. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 in a place and, and we don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere in the vicinity. And there's a couple of places where people point to a likely place where that could have happened. And then Jesus goes and he feeds the 4,000. And I can remember reading my Bible and go like, okay, this is a little redundant. Okay, mm. we get it. You, right. you, you, can, you can do that. Good job. Wait However, <laughs> yeah, without, without going into too much details and just sticking to the geography part, the place where Jesus feeds the 4,000 is in a completely different location, right. which means it's with a completely different audience. Right. And then the disciples get into the boat. And Jesus says to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees Mm. and the Sadducees. And the disciples start saying, oh, my goodness, we forgot to bring any bread. Do you have have any bread on you? I didn't bring any bread. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus takes them to a place called Bethsaida. Now, there is a fairly recent uh, archaeological dig, Heather, that you haven't even seen yet, which I hope to take you to. Mm -hmm. That's the biblical Bethsaida. So there was was a belief that the Sea of Galilee went farther up into a valley that, that so the biblical Bethsaida had to be on a hill. Yeah. However, an acquaintance of mine and used to teach at the school where I went, he actually found the remains of a Roman village that's right on the shore. Wow. So no longer, it pretty much tells us that what we see at the Sea of Galilee is pretty much the same boundaries as Jesus saw 2,000 years ago. Wow. And Jesus shows up to this town gets out of the boat and said, takes a blind man. And the Bible says very specifically, they took him outside of town. Mm-hmm. So whatever Jesus is going to do is not for everybody's consumption. It's only sure. for the disciples to see. Right. right. And he takes him and he touches his eyes and he opens his eyes. And this blind man who was blind can says, I see men walking around like trees, Right. which that tells you a whole bunch of stuff. But for the sake of keeping this going, and then you wonder yourself, was Jesus's batteries running low that day? Like, why couldn't he have just healed him straight yeah, away? Right. And then he heals him again, and he sees perfectly. Yeah. Now, my mentor uh, emailed a Jewish rabbi and said, hey, I don't understand this story. Sure. And the, the rabbi emailed him back right away and said, you nudnik, which is not a nice term in Hebrew, basically means you silly, not very smart person. Right. Read, read the story before. Wow. And that's when Jesus feeds, I believe, the 4,000. Okay. So the problem is, if you see a miracle and it doesn't change you, have you really seen it? Hmm. And when you sit in, in the town of Bethsaida, the, the biblical town of Bethsaida, you stand with an eye shot of the place where Jesus just fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. You can see both places from that place. Hmm. So geography is telling you is Jesus is I could see Jesus giving his message to his disciples, pointing to the both these these locations with his hands, which would be very rabbinic because a rabbi will talk about things that you can see, touch, and taste. Mm-hmm. Where again, we can go into a room and talk about these deep theological terms that need definitions, and that's how we learn. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not trying to sure. advocate sure. one better than the other. Right. However, I just read a quote um, this morning when I was reading. That the Bible was written in a Middle Eastern cultural worldview. And if we don't read the Bible from within the lenses of that worldview, then we run the risk of reading it through our own lenses, which would not be the same. Yeah. And geography plays a huge part in that. And 
to, to sit around the Sea of Galilee as you have done and realize we're not talking Lake Michigan, where I grew up on Lake Michigan, True. where it's 50 miles across. You can't even see Chicago except for maybe the top of the Sears Tower on a clear day. Yeah. Um, to a 12 by 7 lake. Right. And then you realize all the different people groups that lived around that lake that had very diametrically opposed worldviews of life. And that Jesus is engaging at some level, I'm sure, every one of these people groups, even though the Bible doesn't say that he did. The Bible only gives us 17 to 19 days of Jesus's life. Right. However, I can't imagine that he didn't go into Tiberias. I can't imagine that he right. didn't engage the people around the lake, not just the ones that were told about. So if we believe in the God of the universe, who these guys just saw him take a, a kid's lunch Mm-hmm. And feed over nine thousand people. Oh, just just the men, by the way, not women and children. Right. Then, when they got in the boat and they realized they didn't have bread, I think an appropriate response would be, hey, "Don't worry about it. Jesus is with us. He's got it." Ah, uh, right. So, but that wasn't their response. That's right. So the point being is that when God does stuff in our lives, and that's one of the reasons why I really think it's huge that we keep a prayer journal just so that when things do get crazy, we can look back at all these times where God's faithfulness has come and yeah. shown up in powerful ways okay. that that changes us so that we don't have as much anxiety or it enables us to, to return to joy and plug back into the hope that we have in Jesus in the current crisis yeah. so that, that the enemy can't, can't rob us of joy today by taking our anxiety yeah. because we're okay because Jesus is with us. And at the end of the day, I will tell you that's one of the differences with what we do on our trips is that this is just not an academic process. The idea is take the academic stuff, take the geography stuff, the history stuff, the cultural stuff, and how do we need it into our hearts? Because ultimately, mm-hmm. if all this stuff we do in Israel on a biblical tour yeah. doesn't transform us as who we are as people yeah. and draw us closer to God and to the Lord and to the text, yeah. Well, then it's just an academic exercise. And that is so true. That's the one thing I appreciated the most about a trip because our experience, because I've been to Israel twice and the second time was with a tour group and it just didn't hit at the heart. And I loved it how we would go to a biblical site and we would stay there for a long time and you would unpack the scriptures with us and you would show us what happened at those biblical sites and how you know we could apply that to our lives as Jesus's disciples today. So, John, this has been a super great conversation, and hopefully it's got people wondering, um, hey, I want to learn some more here, and hopefully they'll say to themselves, well, I'm going to get signed up for the Zoom uh, discussion that is going to happen on September uh, the 16th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So the link for that we'll post in the show notes, and we'll also post on the Facebook group as well. And uh, if you're interested in going to the land of Israel with us, uh, definitely shoot us a message. Let us know and we can get you a pamphlet. And uh, we would love to see you there. We're planning on going as long as COVID just shut the world down again. So, um, friends, it's been a pleasure. And um, John, thanks again for joining us for the show. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much. <laughs>